Well, last week, um, obviously, we finished uh, chapter 3, and there we saw a brief but an important description of what the church is. And I told you, if you never marked in your Bibles, that's a probably a passage of Scripture you need to at least put a dot by if you ever question the importance of the church. There was a brief description of what the church is, and we, were, we saw that the church is the household of God, the pillar and the buttress of truth, the church of the living God. As well, there was a reminder that at the heart of all that the church is and does lies the gospel. The good news concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is the basis of all that we do as a church. We begin chapter 4 with Paul returning to a theme that he's talked about earlier. And that's false teaching. False teachers. Immediately... Don't miss this. Immediately after describing the church as the pillar and the foundation of truth, Paul says here that in spite of those things, there will be some, perhaps many, who will depart and walk away from the truth and instead will embrace deceitful and evil doctrines. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other city in which he planted the church. In the book of Acts, when it comes time for Paul to leave the church at Ephesus, when it comes time for him to leave, he calls the, the elders, he calls the pastors of the church together. He calls them together and he gives them a warning. It's, it's one of the saddest and alarming warnings in all of the Bible. He tells them that in the days ahead, false teachers are going to come into the church. Unfortunately, Paul warns there, they're even going to come from within the church. That's where they're going to come from. Listen as I read Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and following. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the the spiritual leaders, the elders, the pastors of the church. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Some of these false teachers he's talking about here were actually leaders within the church. Some scholars suspect maybe even the elders, some of the elders and the pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now here in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what it says. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What Paul said in Acts chapter 20, has that come true? He warned them for three years, night and day, continuously, guard yourselves, be careful. The devil is always wanting to get into the church and cause false teaching to come about to lead people away from the truth. If you're looking at your handout, we see that the main idea is is quite simple. It's how to tell the truth from error. How to tell the truth from error. 
Again, look at your handout. These applica- uh, these points of division here are, uh, are application statements. I purposely did them that way. How to tell the truth from error, verses 1 through 3. Be on guard for what is false. Was that what Paul told those pastors in the church there at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20? You've got to be alert. Pay careful attention. He says here, be on guard for what is false. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Paul begins by telling us that people are not always going to embrace the truth. In fact, some are going to receive the truth and amazingly they are going to walk away from the truth. And because of that, we the church, we, we always have to be on guard in terms of what we believe, in terms of what we teach, in terms of what we listen to, who we listen to, and who we read. And I, I'll say this, and I know you've heard me say it before. When you go into the Christian bookstore, you better be real careful. Like I've told you, particularly in the Lifeway store, they've gotten a lot better, really a lot better. I usually walk past the first row because, let me let you know on a secret, if they have discount books there, three for whatever, there's a reason those books are there. They're worthless. Go right on past them and keep moving. Now the Spirit expressly says, literally, the Spirit in words says, the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, clearly says, this is not Paul. And we know that the Scriptures are inspired by the Spirit of God. These men were moved by the Spirit of God. But Paul's making sure we understand here. The Holy Spirit says that in latter times, some are going to depart from the faith. Now, where exactly does the Spirit say that? That'd be a good question. Well, the Spirit says that through the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. There Jesus warns of people being led astray in latter times. Jesus Himself says that's going to happen. Again, Acts chapter 20. There we see Paul speaking to the the very congregation, warning the elders of the church that some among them will rise up and lead people away. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he warns of false teachers who will lead people astray. Peter, as well as Jude in the New Testament, also inspired by God's Spirit, warns people about the danger of falling away. You know, used to, and I would read the New Testament... I kind of got frustrated because it seemed like in every letter that Paul wrote, he brought up the subject of what? False teaching. And most of the time we go, well, Paul, you talked about that in that other letter. Let's just, we got that. Let's kind of move on. Why do you think Paul continuously has to do that? Be careful. Pay attention. It's a constant. And who's leading him to do that, by the way? The Holy Spirit of God. You know, that should sadden us. It should concern us, but it should not surprise us. When we read passages like this, it will cause us to have heavy hearts, but we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because God, in His Word, says it's going to happen. Notice He says, when it's going to happen. In latter times. That's a key to helping us understand, when is this going to happen? The Holy Spirit says it's going to happen. When is it going to happen? Well, latter times, in the New Testament, refers to the period between Jesus' first coming... And his second come. When Jesus is born in the major until he comes again the second time. That's the latter times. So you are living when? In the latter times. Everybody since every every church that has existed from the time of Jesus until this time, all of Christian history, we've been living in the latter times. It's just a matter of we live in the latter of the latter times. 
So when you read that, that's what the, the Bible's talking about. They were in the latter days of the 3rd century, the 12th century, and the 18th century. We today live in the latter times. The last days since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit says that in the latter times, notice what He says, some will depart from what? The faith. The faith refers to God's revelation. It refers to the Bible. It refers to the truth of the Gospel. They depart from the truth... They depart from a lot of truth, but in particular, they depart from the truth that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and lived a sinless life and died to redeem sinners. They, they deny that. They depart from the faith. They depart from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the fact that He alone is the Savior. They depart from the truth of God. Notice there that word, depart. We get our English word, apostasy, comes from that word. Depart does not... Listen carefully. Listen to this. Depart does not refer to someone who is saved and they lose their salvation. That's not what this is talking about. It means to move away from. It means you're stepping away from and walking away from something that you once claimed to be a Christian. Paul does not mean that some people become Christians and they lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. Paul is speaking about people making a profession of faith and then eventually they reject the faith later on and they move away. And the Bible's clear. When that takes place, the Bible's clear. When people do that, they never really experience saving grace in the first place. Biblically, this is not my view, but biblically, you cannot... Make a profession of faith and be genuinely born again and lose your salvation. That cannot happen. My question for you is, if God saves you, God saves you. God does not lose what He saves. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 to substantiate that argument. And listen carefully to this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. What's he saying? When they walk away, when they go out and deny the faith and walk away from their profession, what does 1 John 2.19 says? When they do that, they prove what? But they went out in order that they might be shown that they are, are not of us. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They wouldn't have done that. But they went out in order to what? Prove that they were never really believers to begin with. How is it that someone can profess to be a follower of Jesus and then stop being a follower of Jesus? It happens when we listen to false teaching. Some will depart from the faith, note it says there, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. That word devote means they, they cling to something. The word deceitful there has the idea of wandering. People depart because they devote, they hold on to, they cling to what is false, and they, they wander away. They, they've listened to false teaching. And let me say this. False teaching can also occur when we say nothing. False teaching happens just as much by what we don't say as it does by what we say that's error. Right? 
And notice who Paul says is behind the work of that false teaching. Deceitful spirits and demons. Man, that kind of... That makes you stop and think. Deceitful spirits and demons. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You know who sends that false teaching in the life of the church? The devil does. He sends that in. This is not, this is not teaching about demons, but teaching done through their influence. Every teaching, listen, every teaching that opposes the truth of God is ultimately a demonic teaching that wants to usurp the authority of God. Notice verse 2. These false teachers, are, they're just liars. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Some of you have a translation, speaking lies and hypocrisy. They're liars. They're liars because what they taught was opposed to the truth. Notice there it says, through insincerity. That's a very interesting couple of words there. Through insincerity. In other words, they're hypocrites. Their lives don't match up with what they profess. See, actions are just as bad as words, right? Through insincerity. They're they're hypocrites. Their lives don't match up with what they profess. At the end of verse 2, Paul describes these false teachers as those who their consciences are seared. Some translations read, seared with a hot iron. That word means to cauterize. Everybody know what that means? You ever been to the doctor and they cauterize something to stop blood flow? They put something hot on you and they burn it? These people's consciences are seared. Their consciences are cauterized, it says. Some of you have translations with a hot iron. In other words, their consciences have lived so long in the lies of their life, they believe the lies. You know something? If you're not careful, you stop and think about this. You tell a lie, and then you tell that same lie again, and then you tell that same lie again, You ever got to the point where you you kind of believe that lie yourself, right? Your conscience becomes seared to the truth. They're no longer able to discern the difference between truth and error. They can't even discern anymore. If what people preach and teach is not what we saw in chapter 3, verse 16, then what they preach and teach is false. What do we see in... Chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus was manifested in the flesh, raised from the dead by the Spirit of God, was seen by angels. He's going to be proclaimed and believed on in the world, and He was taken up into glory. If what people preach and teach is not that, then what they preach and teach is false. Some will say, you know, well, we shouldn't judge. We shouldn't judge people. People are really sincere in what they believe. I don't doubt that. Some people are sincere in what they believe. But you need to understand that sincerity is never the measure by which you evaluate truth. It's never the measure by which you evaluate truth. Verse 3, Paul gives up. He gives a couple examples of the things these false teachers were teaching. <coughs> Notice there, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Two things they do that Paul tells us. 
Obviously, there was probably other things, but these two things are what He, led by the Spirit, gives us. And when you first read it, you're kind of like, what's the big deal? Notice how they forbid people to marry. They tell people they ought not to get married. In other words, these false teachers, they affirm the superiority of a celibate lifestyle. And that word celibate means not to marry, no sexual relations. They're making moral demands, which are in disagreement with the Word of God. God pronounces marriage to be good. Not only in Genesis chapter 2, but also in 1 Corinthians 7 and Mark chapter 2. So they were forbidding people to marry. And I'm going to explain here in a minute why they were doing these couple of things. These false teachers are saying, if you really want to be super spiritual, you'll abstain from marriage. Secondly, they also require abstinence from certain foods. Okay? Now... A lot of people I read, a lot of Bible scholars, people know who far more than I do about this, believe that they were telling people to refrain from eating meat. And you're going, oh, they are crazy. They would say, if you really want to be spiritual, you'll wean yourself away from the desire to eat certain food. Eat bean sprouts, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Don't eat bacon, steak, or fried chicken. Bless your heart. If that's your conviction, fine. But don't see yourself as more spiritual because you choose to eat that way. They were saying, you really want to be spiritual, you really want to be in with God, this is what you got to do. You can't marry and you should abstain from eating meat, most people think. So what's up with this idea of no marriage and no eating of meat? This is a form of what's commonly referred to as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this early movement in the in the, the beginnings of the church that taught that salvation comes by learning these mysterious spiritual truths that kind of free you from the material world. Okay? No marriage, no meat is what's referred to as asceticism. That's another part of the Gnostic belief. Denying oneself physical pleasure. That's what asceticism is. Don't get married. Deny yourself that. Don't eat meat. Deny yourself that. The idea behind it was actually that here's what they believed. They believed the physical world, the creation was polluted. It was tainted. It was evil. That's what they believed. The physical world is evil, but the non-physical, the spiritual world, that's where it's at. That's, that's where all the good is. And so salvation for these false teachers involved escaping the physical world. Stay away from that stuff. Here's where salvation lies. It's in this non-physical, it's in this spiritual world. And if you could, and if you could put to death these desires for marriage and food, then you, you could escape the, the physical creation and you'd enter this higher spiritual world, which they said equals salvation. That's what they were saying. I don't have time to tell you how they come to that. That's another whole another long discussion there. Now most of us sitting here going, well that's crazy. Right? But that's what was going on. And believe it or not, it goes on in our day and time. 
There's a big problem with this way of thinking. It's not a biblical view of salvation, is it? They were teaching people, this is how you obtain salvation. This is how you are made right with God. It's a very wrong view of the problem of sin, right? So they dismiss sin. You do the work, you put away these things, and seek this, and this is how you obtain salvation. The main error of the false teaching is that of setting your own view of the Christian life over the view that God's revealed in His Word. That's what it all boils down to. God says this, but we say this. This is where we go. Does that happen in our day and time? They don't... There's other ways this happens in our day and time, right? And I'm going to explain some of that to you at the end. God has this view, but our world will say, there's many roads that lead to Jesus or to God, right? There's a lot of ways to God. Paul here is warning about the danger of being unaware. We have to be on guard. And let me tell you something, mamas and daddies. You've got to be extremely careful today when your kids are going to school. You know, I... I was at the Good News Club here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, it wasn't us, Red Bud. There was another church there. And I was there uh, helping them out. And one of the, the leaders says, you know what? They were talking about uh, the lesson and you know doing memory verses and teaching. They says, I'm just amazed that some of these kids have no clue about the Bible. And I stood there and they says, for goodness sakes, we live in Franklin County. Everybody knows what the Bible is. I said, oh no. I said, do you realize that 62% of Franklin County does not go to church? And that person looked at me like I'd lost my mind. Everybody in Franklin County goes to church. I said, oh no. I said, we got to get out of the Stone Age and get into the real world. People don't know what the Bible is anymore. People don't know who Jesus is. They do not know the truth. And we got to be aware. we got to be on guard. And parents, when you send your kids to school, they're going to come home and say things you're thinking, I've never heard such in my life. Particularly you parents when your kids go off to college. Paul's warning us here. We've got to be aware of these things. And here, here's an application for you. <coughs> Me, your pastor, and Richard, our youth pastor, we have to be concerned about these things. You... Redeemed church member, all of you need to be concerned. You need to be on guard for these things. Listen, everything you hear on the radio, everything you hear on the TV, everything you see in the Christian bookstore is not on the up and up. We must all be on guard against the possibility of false teachers coming into our midst. Remember chapter 3 verse 15? Who are we? We are the pillar and the buttress of truth. That means we can't sit back and just kick it in gear. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be watching. False teachers can come through books. Just because it's on the religious shelf at Walmart does not make it true. I was in there the other day and a popular author, uh, the title of the book, 20 Ways to Have a Better Day. And I was like, ain't no telling how many of these have been bought. It's in the religious section on the bookshelf at Walmart. I'd never been in there. You probably don't need to go either. Let me tell you something else. Everything you see on Facebook that's religious, I tell people all the time, you better be careful on Facebook about what you read and listen to me, especially what you choose to repost. 
You better, you better not hit the like button until you read something. I've seen people hit like and I read it and I go, oh my. You better read that. You better be careful. You better be on guard. Here's another thing. And you may think, man, you're, 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 getting, you're getting hardcore here. I've got to the point when somebody tells me they were baptized, I say, why? And they look at me like, why does everybody get baptized? I say, I, I want you to, why, why did you get baptized? Well, uh, you'd be amazed at how many people can't give you a clear explanation of the gospel as to why they were baptized. And you're saying, well, that's being mean-spirited. No, it's not. It's loving that person if they've been duped to help them understand the truth. Secondly, when, and here's the thing. All this is kind of depressing, right? When someone does abandon the faith, it shouldn't throw your faith into question. Instead, it proves the truth of the Bible. That's how you apply this. Listen, when someone prominent falls, what does it do? It brings shame on the church. It hurts the, the testimony of the church. It hurts that person's testimony. It hurts his, his family. But it shouldn't throw our faith into question because the Bible says those things are going to happen, right? Now in verses 3 through 5, not only do we have to be on guard, but we need to be ready to fight against what is false. And we do that with Scripture. It says, who forbid marriage and require absence from foods. And then it says that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. What is he talking about? What did they say reject? Marriage and food. For everything God created is what? Good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy... How? By the Word of God and prayer. How, how do we test the truth? First of all, we use the Word of God to determine the truth. He says in verse 3, Those who believe in what? Know the truth. Know means not that you've read it and you think, well, that's what it's... It means you, you know it. It's, it's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's in your life. It's applied. The Bible says that marriage and food were made by God. And you should receive those things with thanksgiving. Those who believe and know the truth, they'll do that. What is he saying? Those people are false teachers who are telling you that. Because if they read the Bible, they'll believe and know the truth and they won't do that. Verse 5, it says, That which is sanctified by the Word of God. And so what we do is we come to the Bible and we ask the question, What does God say about these things? That's the simplest thing in the world. What does God say about this? What does God say about anything? When the question comes up, as a believer, you ought to go, I wonder what the Bible says about this. Paul takes us to Scripture in verse 4. And here he shows us that we, we combat false teaching with the truth of Scripture. He takes, us, he takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. And the truth of Genesis 1 about God's creation. What does he say? For everything created by God is good. Where is he taking us? Back to Genesis. You, you remember what God says after each day of the six days of creation and twice after the six days? What does he say? It was 
Good. God saw it, and it was good. And finally, after the sixth day of creation, in which man and woman were created, God says it was what? Good? Very good. What do these false teachers, they say? It's not good. And Paul says, God says in His Word that it's good. What are you going to believe? Nothing is to be rejected, he says, if it's received with thanksgiving, for it was made holy by the Word of God. And it's given to us as a good gift from a great God. How do I know this? Verse 5 again says, by the Word of God in prayer. Prayer is the primary (coughs) means whereby we thank God for good things that He's given us. We know the truth of God's Word, and we respond with what? Thanksgiving. God says, get married. We say, yay. Thank you, Lord. Now just send me somebody. And then we sit down at the table, and there's bacon. We go, praise the Lord. God says, it's good. Bring me some more. God said it's good. Because His Word says it's good, and we respond to that truth with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Now, what, what about us? Outside of a, a particular denomination and some strange <coughs> religious groups, <coughs> we don't necessarily deal with this idea of cel- celibacy and food, right? We, we know a, a denomination or two that goes into the celibacy area, and there's some of these strange groups that still deal with this food. And we're thinking, well, you know, we don't, that, that's not prominent in our, our circles of life in this day and time. So, what are some issues, some of the very important biblical theological issues that are for sure to be, we're to be confronted with? That's how we apply this. We're going, well, we don't have to worry about the marriage and the food thing because that don't happen with us. No, you take this and you go, well, what happens in our day and time that follows this same principle? Does that make sense? Let me give you some quickly. Number one, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible. Inerrancy means to be without error. Sufficiency means that the Bible contains all that we need for salvation, for trusting God, and for obeying Him. <clears throat> Can I tell you, this is where all false teaching starts. A question gets raised just like it did with Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, what did the serpent say? Did God really say that? Are you sure? Is that right? Is that really the best thing for you? You remember, that's how he said it to him, right? And the devil's still doing that today. And when this happens, this is us, not the church, but us as mankind saying our way is better than God's way and God's Word's not true. That's what we're saying. God's Word says that adultery is wrong. We say, no, it's not. God's Word says that divorce is wrong. And we say, no, it's not. God's Word says that living with someone out of wedlock is wrong. We say, no, it's not. When we commit sin like this, we should seek the Lord in repentance and sorrow and regret. And listen, and when we do, listen, there is always forgiveness from God. I'm not up here to beat people over the head, 
because of adultery or divorce or living with someone because we point that out to them. We love you, but your life is wrong. And by the way, you need to run to God for forgiveness and God will give you forgiveness. That's what we do. What are some other issues? Secondly, God is also a God of wrath as well as a God of love. Our, 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 our culture has no problem saying God is love, right? But most people, when you bring up the idea that God is a God of judgment, He's a God of wrath, He's a God of righteousness and justice, and He will judge sinners forever and ever, people become unsettled with that. On Wednesday nights, we're reading through the book of Nahum, right? Nahum says, oh no, God's a God of just, righteous, wrath, and judgment. Thirdly, we deny that all mankind are born sinners and are attracted to idolatry. <coughs> Listen, we don't come into the world as good people. We don't come into the world with a, with a neutral nature and we just got to figure out which way we go. We come into this world with a heart bent and prone towards sin. As soon as we're able to sin, what do we do? We do it. And we do it, wow, gladly. All of us have idols, things that are ultimate in our lives other than God, things that we believe are the most important, things that we believe will bring us happiness and joy and pleasure. And we set God aside and we put those things front and center. Our world is good at that. Unfortunately, some professing believers are good at that. Fourth, the sinless life of Jesus as a substitutionary death to pay the penalty for sin. People deny that. Listen, people within the church will deny that. Jesus was without sin. And that's one of the things that qualified Him to die for your sin. Jesus was not a martyr who simply died for some noble cause he believed in. Jesus died in your place and he paid the full penalty of sin and he is the Savior. There is no other way to be right with God. All roads do not lead to God. Next is the exclusivity of the gospel. This is hard for me to get my mind wrapped around. Surveys indicate that half of evangelicals say they have been born again and believe that by putting faith in Jesus they will go to heaven. But they also believe it's possible to get to heaven by doing good works. Half of evangelicals believe that. They believe, yeah, you've got to trust in Jesus, but if somebody else can do something good and God accepts that, then they're going. In other words, Jesus' way is good for me, but another way may be good for you. Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through Him. It can't get much clearer than that, can it? Number six. If that's six, I don't know. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Today, people will argue with you and believe that if you're simply good enough and you work at it, you're going to get there. That's kind of the same as the one I said before. But you talk to... Have you ever asked somebody, what does it take to get to heaven? you ever gotten the question? Well, if I'm good and I work hard and I take care of my family and I, and I don't do no harm to nobody, then I think that's the way I get in. You'd be surprised that people you are around on a daily basis that walk around believing that. 
In other words, you have the ability, or at least should have the right, to earn your standing before God. That's what they're saying. I have the ability, or I ought to be able to establish what's required. <clears throat> Next is the reality of eternal hell. That's called into question. In the Bible, you read this for yourself. Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. He talks about hell more than He does heaven. And when someone talks about something a whole lot, what should that tell us? We need to pay attention. The Bible is absolutely clear that there is eternal heaven and there is eternal hell. And one last one here. This one is probably more prominent in our culture today than it's ever been. And it probably, you could throw all these others into that. The sexual limitations set by God for our good and His glory. Sex is designed by God to be between a man and a woman within marriage. And we are far from that in our world. And here's what I want to say. Lovingly as I can, and knowing that I'm part of the church... Part of the blame is to fall on us. Because we fail to maintain the place of biblical marriage even in the church. When you and I try to stand up and talk about the sanctity of marriage, our knees are cut out from underneath us because they point back to the church and they say what? You bunch of hypocrites. You bunch of hypocrites. There's... Sex within the church, outside of marriage, and there's sex within the church outside of that between a man and a woman. Don't tell us about the sanctity of marriage. They point back to the church and they call us hypocrites. But we're still the church, right? As messed up as we are, we are still the church. These are just a few of the errors that make their way into the church by deceitful spirits and demons. So, brothers and sisters, we better be on guard so that we'll be able to tell the Word of God, by the Word of God, that which is true and that which is error. Let's pray.